please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. You can also follow along on page 7 in your bulletin. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are, anoint, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome figure, features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new or visiting, uh, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament that, that speak to how God works through our brokenness, our personal brokenness. And uh, we've been, we started in Genesis. We've been wa walking our way through the Old Testament, and we've, we've come to a series of passages uh, that were worthwhile, very, very important to Metro uh, over the years. Uh, we've preached this uh, kind of mini-series uh, several times um, because there's a great emphasis on the importance of character all the while as we see God working through the brokenness that is oftentimes demonstrated or modeled in the Old Testament. And so we see the overarching theme of God working through brokenness and then this kind of underlying theme of the importance of character. And that's where we are. And we've come to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we just talked about this last week, Saul, King Saul, he was supposed to be a king, a man after God's own heart but he was corrupted. He became a lot like the rest of the kings of his day, and so God rejects Saul as king. But then God comes to Samuel, and he says, but there is somebody, there is another, a person who's after my own heart. That's my king. Why? What does it mean to be kingly? There are three things we're going to learn about kingly character today. It's necessity, 
its possibility, and then its practicality. The necessity of kingliness, why we need kingliness in our lives. The possibility of kingliness, how we get it. And then lastly, how do we practice it, the practicality? First, we're going to be looking at the necessity of kingliness. Last week, we looked at chapter 15, and God tells Samuel, I'm grieved that Saul is king. And so Samuel's mourning, he's crying, he's grieving. And by chapter 16, he's still grieving, he's still mourning, and God snaps him out of it. Verse 1, he says, how long will you mourn for Saul? And he says, I'm sending you to Bethlehem because he's chosen. He says, I've chosen a son from the house of Jesse to be king. And Samuel gets to Jesse's house, and you get to verses 6 to 7. That's really the pivotal, the central point. It's kind of the pivotal part of the entire passage. Jesse, he's the father. He gathers his sons, and in verse 6, Samuel sees the eldest, Eliab or Eliab, right? He's the eldest son. He's obviously uh, the choice Uh, to be king. Samuel sees his appearance. He sees his height, and he's incredibly enamored. He's impressed, and he thinks, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, but God knows what Samuel's thinking, and God responds in verse 7. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance. That's what God says. In other words, God's saying, Samuel, you're distracted. You're looking at only what's visible. You're paying attention to things that are not important, but it looks important. These are the externals, and it's captivated your heart. Yes, these things are visible. Yes, these things are material, but they're still not real. Eliab, he's tall. Samuel says, this is the one. It must be the one. Why does the author mention, why does he emphasize a person's height? In ancient times, your height represented power. Your height represented strength and athleticism, power, prowess. It still does in a sense today. We still judge people by their height and their athleticism and their looks. Saul, King Saul, was tall. The Bible said that Saul was an impressive young man without any equal among the Israelites. He was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel, he sees Saul. Later he says, the Lord Anointed you. In other words, you must be the one that God has chosen. You must be the chosen one. And he really wasn't. God was actually really just giving the people what they wanted, what they were looking for, what they thought kingliness looked like. Now we get to, and and Saul fails miserably. Now we get to Eliab. He's tall and he's impressive. And God says, you're about to make the same mistake that you did with Saul. Because those externals, A person's physique or their figure, their looks, their education, it's so intoxicating just because they look humble, just because they look gracious. I mean, Saul, he demonstrated humility at one point in his life. He demonstrated mercy at one point in his life. He prophesied, which means that he demonstrated wisdom at one point in his life. And he had potential and he had gifts. He came from a great family. Samuel, he's just absolutely captivated. And God says, that's the trap. What do you look for? In a friend, what do you look for when you date? The Lord looks at the heart. Character is real reality. The externals, the outward, these are misleading. These are distractions. A guy comes into a room, he's good looking, he's handsome, he's intelligent, uh, he's mild mannered. 
Uh, he's, he, he acts humble. He's consistent at church, consistent in a community group. And we say, man, this is the one. This person's got potential. He's got skills. We're attracted to him, just naturally attracted. He's got a great sense of humor. He's polished. He's smooth. We like him. Why? Your physical appearance, your smoothness, a person's intelligence or their talents, maybe their accomplishments and their success, their wealth, God says these things are actually unimportant. It's not reality. That a person's character overrides is more important than his externals. But our human condition, in our human condition, man, we, we look at the outward appearance. We focus on it. We emphasize it. We focus on the externals. We're intoxicated by the externals, not God. We live in a society. We live in a culture that's bombarded with images of physical beauty every day to the degree that we are willing to go to great distances. We are willing to pay a huge price to live, to give off the appearance of greatness, to give off the appearance that we are confident, confident in ourselves. And the Bible says that we invest way too much emotional energy, way too much time relying on the externals when we should be investing that same energy, that same time, building gospel character, looking for and looking at and living among gospel character, and it's ruining us. How? I'm going to give you some examples. One, I said this probably the last time I preached this, the pornography industry, the makeup industry, the fashion industry, most industries, especially today, they capitalize on our obsession with shape, our figures, our physique, the quality of our body, the externals versus character. And it's hurting our women. It's destroying families, destroying marriages. It's destroying society. Scholars will tell you that today. Commentators will tell you that today. Secondly, look at the people that we idolize. Look at the people that you admire. In any given day, they're usually good-looking, talented, intelligent, Pedigreed. Oh, she went to that school. Oh, he works at that place. They must be intelligent. That must mean that they are wise. That is elder potential. I mean, in the Asian church, you see that everywhere. It's the smartest people. It's the, I mean, you don't have to be Asian. It doesn't matter. And especially, especially in suburban churches, one thing that you see uh, common is that the people who are the wealthiest and the most intelligent are the ones who ascend to the roles of leadership because, I mean, they must be wise. They can run a company. They must be wise, we say. <laughs> We're never impressed with people of character. We're never looking for that. Even as Christians in the church, we come to idolize the same external qualities as the rest of society and the rest of the culture around us. We're still so influenced by our coworkers or where you live or who you hang out with. And we've chosen that attractive social insider, that pretty one, that, that one who has a great job, that athlete, that wealthy person. And getting in with those people helps to define our sense of worth. We're never impressed by people of great character. 
But we love to be around attractive people. Case in point, this is the third reason. Case in point, if you're honest, look at how you date. Today, people look to date the same way, the exact way that Jesse looks for a king in his family, at least in the heart. Jesse knew that one of his sons was going to be king, so what does he do? He lines all, he lines all of his sons up, and he assumes that the person who's most uh, physically impressive, the most attractive one, the most gifted one, that person is going to be king. And so does Samuel. Samuel doesn't get it. Verse 6, he sees Eliab, oh, must be Eliab. He's the eldest. That means he's got responsibilities. I mean, in that ancient culture, primogeniture was really the law. So you centralized your wealth, so he had to manage wealth. He had to manage higher hands. This man, he's a great manager. And he, he, can, he can lead people. It must be him. But it wasn't. You see that? Verse 7, God says, no. Verse 8, then it must be Abinadab. No. Well, now Samuel's getting a little concerned. Verse 9, Shama. No. Verse 10, seven sons passed in front of Samuel. None of them are king. Meanwhile, David, the eighth son, he's completely overlooked. Jesse has eight sons. David wasn't even brought to the party. He wasn't even invited to the party, and yet he is the king. How does that happen? Because we are obsessed with Eliab's, we pursue looks and figure and skills and, and credentials and wealth and education. This determines and defines status and abilities and skills. We, should be, we pursue these things when we should be pursuing humility and repentance and biblical wisdom and biblical maturity over all these externals especially over a period of time, but we're never impressed by character. We just assume that if you have credentials, I mean, that's the hard thing. That takes a decade to build credentials and skills. Character is the easy part. It's not. In fact, the Bible emphasizes that the fruit of real character is impossible unless God is working in your life. The fruit of lasting character is impossible unless you have the gospel. You see that? You don't just get it. You don't just inquire. You don't just earn it. You can't just do it. It's not an issue of your will. It's an issue of your worship. You need to be supernaturally shaped into character. And by the way, when I say good character, I'm not saying, you know, oftentimes you know, people come to me for counsel and they say, you know, I've been going to this church for a while. I'm interested in this one person at our church. Um, and, and, and I say, well, first of all, is he a believer? Is, he, is she a Christian? And they say, well, I mean, he goes to church. That's enough, right? I mean, he believes in God. I know that. But there's this potential between us. There's this chemistry between us. I'm attracted to this person. No. You see, that's what Saul had. There's this fundamental difference between somebody who is a good person and somebody who has gospel character. There's a fundamental, foundational difference between somebody who is churched and someone who's been transformed by the gospel. This passage is saying that we're looking at all the wrong things. We're looking for all the wrong things. If you want to think about growing up in your childhood, some of you, a lot of you grew up in the church, and you see all the brokenness, the horrible brokenness in your churches. I mean, if you're a pastor's kid, you probably see it in some ways 
better. You see it probably from a different angle. You see a lot of brokenness in the church. You know where it starts? It starts here because we rely on people who don't have the gospel, the proven gospel character over time, and we rely on them for simply a worldly gift or a worldly talent or because they look the part or act the part. You get what I'm saying here? And so like Jesse, the chances of having just eliminated the real king is very high because you're distracted. For those of you who are dating and single, you are eliminating the chance of finding the real kingly person in your crowd or in your circle because you're distracted and you're intoxicated by the wrong things. You see that? You see why this is important? Fourthly, why, why do people come to the city, the big city, a city like Philadelphia? It's because they want to increase their wealth potential in the city. You get to do that. In the city, you get to increase your education. You get to improve your gifts and your skill sets. You, uh, you tend to build those things and your wealth potential. Or you increase the chances of meeting somebody who's got those qualities. Because you've placed such a high value on the externals, and you've placed your sense of worth in these things, and it's become the source of just anxiety and depression because it's really become rooted in your identity. And it causes lots of hurts, lots of brokenness, even in the church. It's corroding the church, corroding souls in the church, and corroding relationships and the life of the church. Now, I want to make sure we clarify that when God says, I didn't want these people as king because I look at the heart, it's easy to misunderstand this passage to think that, that what's, what God is saying is that David is a good person and his brothers were bad people. It's not true. It can't be true because if you looked at the rest of the books, First and Second, first and second Samuel, David's moral record was really not much better than Saul's. David lived a terrible life in some ways. We're going to see this. A broken life. So he's not a king because he's a better person. He wasn't God's choice because he's a good guy. In verse 13, Samuel takes the horn of oil and he anoints David in the midst of his brothers. And what what is saying the last part of verse 13? From that day on, the spirit of God came upon David in power. Why? Just to improve an already good guy? Just to supplement? Because David just needed a little pick-me-up because he already had great character? No. God chose David. You're the one. David was outcast rejected, cast aside. And in there we see the ruminations of humility and God, that God really subjected him to. And God trained, God nurtured and fostered. And so he anoints him and he honors him. And the spirit of God comes into David's life and floods David's life in every moment for the rest of his life. That is how kingly character is born. That's how kingly character is built and developed. What do you spend your energy, your emotional energy, and your time investing in? In your private lives, when you are alone, what are you preoccupied with? What floods your heart? And Well, it starts with the eyes. What floods your eyes? What do you look at and look for? What floods your soul on a daily basis? What are you privately investing in? What are you privately investing to build in your life? I mean, we want results, right? We want that life, we say. We want that relationship without investing in the character to support that life. Without investing in the character to support that relationship. 
You can't become kingly on your own. You need God's presence every second in every decision and every through every temptation every day every moment because we are constantly bombarded by voices that affirm the external qualities apart from God and so we need gospel character kingly character we need to emphasize character over externals we need the spirit of God for gospel character moment by moment I'm kept in his love. Moment by moment, I have life from above. Looking to Jesus until glory doth shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. That's the necessity of character. Secondly, the possibility of character. How do you get it? Jesse, he's got eight sons. And he parades seven because he figured, I mean, it's going to be one of these guys. It's not going to be David. He automatically just leaves David out. He was so sure. And so he parades these seven sons in front of Samuel. Remember, seven is the number for completeness and perfection. So Samuel, he comes to the house, and he sees seven sons, and he says, yes, of course. It's got to be one of these guys. There's seven of them. It's perfect. One of them must be king, but God selects none of them. Those are the seven that he rejects. So Samuel's baffled, and he turns to Jesse, and in verse 11, he says, essentially paraphrasing, he says, is this it? Is this all you got? I mean, eight sons is a lot of sons. Jesse says, well, I mean, no, there's the youngest. The Hebrew word that he uses to refer to David in that verse combines his view of David's youthfulness, how young David is and how immature and insignificant and in, in, irrelevant uh, David is. And it combines all those words into a sentiment. I mean, it's translated loosely here in our English text, but that's the sentiment. Basically what he says, well, I mean, no, there's, there's him. David is completely, you don't even name him. He's completely overlooked. He's, he's the only one with a normal name, right? He's completely overlooked. He didn't even ask him to come because he can't be king. David can't be king, right? He's a nobody. He's got no real gifts. He's out with the sheep. And Samuel says, I need to see him right now. So verse 12, David comes in and God says, this is the one. What does that tell you? Now listen, there are people in this room, you've got all the externals. I mean, most of you. You've got all the externals. Compared to the rest of the city in this room, you're good people. And you're in the church, and there are people in this room, you are respected by everyone around you. And so you've deceived even yourself because you emphasize the outward and you continue to pursue the outward, even in the church, and you're missing the point because what this passage just told us is that you are overlooked by God. Because know this, get this part, every other place in the Bible where God is working, he's not just throwing a bone to the unattractive people. He's not just helping. uh, I mean, they're so unattractive. I'm just going to help them out. That's not what he does. You know, he looks at some overlooked person who's broken. He says, I mean, I'm gonna, I got some stuff I need to do, but I'm just going to help this person out. He's actually attracted to them. Those are the people that he is naturally drawn to. 
Those are the people that he desires. And so that means that today, if you feel overlooked, if you feel unattractive, you don't have the right looks. You don't have the right pedigree. You don't have the right degrees. Or, or even in the church, it's been a long time since you've been here, and so you don't look the part, you don't act the part. You can't even speak like that Christian church language. You know what I'm talking about, that language that people use? No one ever says, like, I'm pissed off. They say, I'm so frustrated, right? That's how they are, right? No one ever says, like, I'm really, really angry. They say, I'm, I'm, I'm just really frustrated right now. No one ever says, like, oh, gosh, I'm so happy for you because we can't be happy in the church, I guess. I'm so encouraged by you. You know that Christianese that we talk about? We feel so, if you, if you feel overlooked, if you feel unattractive, you can't look the part, you don't, you don't speak the part, that means that God has a spotlight on you. He's looking at you. There's a possibility there. There's potential there. He can use you. And he loves to use you because what he's saying is that I can use you to work in a way that demonstrates my power and my ability and my strength to reverse the values of the world. Case in point. Cases in point. Cain was the elder son. He was the elder son of Adam. God said, nope. He chose Abel, the younger son. Esau was the masculine hunter son. I mean, Isaac, his father, just doted on him. He must be the one, right? Nope. God chose the deceiving, lying, wimpy Jacob. Reuben, I mean, Reuben's the eldest son, primogeniture. He's responsible. He was taking care of all of his brothers. He kept everybody in line. Nope. God chose Joseph. Rachel was the pretty woman, the beautiful wife. When Jacob saw Rachel for the first time, he was just in love. He fell in love right there on the spot. He was willing to do anything, and he did. I mean, he gave his life to earn Rachel as his wife. God must have chosen her, right? Nope. I mean, in ancient times, women didn't have much status, so a beautiful woman was the one that was treasured. Nope. It was Leah that God chose. The ugly woman, David, was a descendant of Leah. Jesus is a descendant of Leah. Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, right on the heels of Leah, the ultimate king, the true king, he himself, unrecognized, overlooked, disfavored, rejected, and murdered. What does that tell you? Stop pursuing Eliab's in your life. Stop idolizing Eliab's in your life. They say the church should be different. Well, how? Because we're following the same patterns. We idolize the same patterns, just better people. The gospel doesn't make you nicer. The gospel makes you new. Stop pursuing Eliab's in your life. Stop trying to be an Eliab in your life. Even in the church. Just stop obsessing over externals. You know what we should be obsessing over? 
repentance, humility. A person who's been broken, it's clear. Over an extended period of time, you see that they've been broken and humbled in faith, by faith in Christ. God doesn't just work through the ugly and the, uh, the humble and the lacking in spite of their weakness and insignificance and irrelevance. He works because of their weakness and unattractiveness and insignificance and irrelevance. He works through their unattractiveness and insignificance and weakness and ir- irrelevance. You see that? What does that tell you? Look, I don't want to demonize people who look the part here in this room. You can be externally right and, and demonstrate not trusting, not relying on your looks, not relying on the skills that you've gained or the wealth that you've accumulated. You can be the one that says, well, that doesn't define me. You know how powerful that is? To be that person who has everything, the looks, the smoothness, the intelligence, the credentials, and say, but that doesn't define me, and live aligned with the fact that that doesn't define you? That your emphasis is on your brokenness, what you're pursuing, righteousness in God. That is bold. That is humble. To be able to sacrifice to be able to put aside these things and say, I'm not pursuing these things. That's not important to me. I'm willing to sacrifice and even surrender those things to build my relationship with the Father. That is humble. That is what God is attracted to. God honors that. How else are you going to have the inner courage? How else are you going to have or build that inner strength to endure hardship to endure criticism. You see, when you have the parts, when you have all the, the looks and the, and the credentials, the critique is not as strong. It's a different kind of critique. But how else are you going to endure the real losses, the real criticisms, all the battles that you have to face tomorrow? Friends, look, I'm a lot older than all of you. I think I can say that. How are you going to endure all the battles that you're going to face tomorrow that you don't even realize are coming your way. I know because I've been through it, at least ahead of you. I don't know what's ahead of me. Where are you going to get the character to support the strength that you need to endure that and still come out honoring the Father? How are you going to do that? You know what David was doing during this time? Verse 11, he was, he was tending to uh, the sheep. He was watching the sheep. He was protecting them. He was feeding them. He was leading them. Robert Alter, he was a professor at Brandeis University. He is currently a professor at Berkeley University. He's a famous Hebrew Old Testament scholar, very liberal scholar. But, you know, his stuff, his knowledge of the Hebrew is so good that all the conservatives still read his stuff. That's how good his stuff is. And he says this. He basically says this. If David was never overlooked, if he, if he wasn't just looking after sheep in this kind of space that was cast aside, if he wasn't there, he would never have learned what it meant to protect his sheep, to kill bears and lions, things that are way larger than a human being. He never would have 
gained or developed the skills that were needed to defeat Goliath, and that's the next chapter. Did he know that he was going to face Goliath? He had no idea what was coming up behind him. You see that? But in that incubator, in that space, in that period, a lot of us, you're in this kind of broken space. Some of you, it's not about the externals, but you're in this broken place, and you're thinking, I'm worthless. I mean, I'm just, I, I invested in the wrong things all my life, and now I'm here, and I'm starting over, and just my life is just broken, and I'm, I'm in this kind of lost space. Maybe you're lost spiritually because there's, there's been a lot of hurt, either in the church or in your family, and, you, and, you're, and you're in this broken place. People that you were supposed to trust, we're supposed to trust these types of people, and you did, and it caused a lot of hurt and grief, and you're kind of in this space, and you're, and, and you're, you're uncomfortable with yourself, you're uncomfortable with life, and you're, you're, you're alone, and it's dark. I'm here to tell you, this passage is telling you that that is an incubator. You know what an incubator is? It's like, a, it's like this kind of vacuum that, that you're put in where it's a spiritual incubator. God is using that vacuum, that space right now, that darkness and that aloneness because he is putting you through the greatest character training program and he is the one leading you through it. We so oftentimes try to avert that kind of suffering and that kind of darkness and aloneness. We don't see, we don't stop and ask ourselves, what is God doing here in my life? I mean, if God is present in my life, what is he doing? You see that? So Robert Alter says that he never would have developed the skills had he not been cast aside to defeat Goliath, which eventually saves his entire nation. That's in the next chapter. The fact is that being overlooked provides this incubation period where David was trained by God himself naturally to lead with instinct, naturally to protect the things that he loves instinctively. There's a very important application here. Some of you right now, you're in this place right now, or you're just feeling that heat, and it's, it's just, you're just broken. Maybe it's your career or your relationships in your life. You feel tossed aside or overlooked, forgotten, unattractive, lost. Focus, it is, I'm telling you, focus on your character, because God, we tend to focus on the person who hurt us. Yes, trust me, guys, I've been through it. I'm a pastor. You don't think I've been through some hurts in the last 10 years? God is focusing on building you, your character. That's how greatness is developed. And no one who became great didn't go through some kind of darkness and aloneness like this. It's that incubator where you learn that nothing else matters. It's that incubator where you learn to pursue intimacy with God. It's that incubator where you learn that you can only trust in the Lord first, that he is the priority. And in season, that yields kingly fruit, and that fruit is kingly character. At the right time, at the right occasion, that kingly fruit God places you in places where that kingly fruit is, is demonstrated. 
But I just want to be seen now. I have gifts, you see. I have, I have something to give to the world. I have knowledge. I went to seminary. I don't know. I know that that's pride. You see? My time is now. That is pride. That was Saul. Grasping for power. Don't never overlook the opportunity that God, in his timing, he's shaping you over the course of time. Never overlook the opportunities that come in season because you want to be seen today. When Samuel looks at Eliab the first time, he says, surely this is him. You know what he's saying? The actual text, surely this is the anointed. The Hebrew word for that is messiah. We get the word Messiah. So when Samuel's looking at Eliab, he says, this must be the, Eliah, the, the, the Messiah. In the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is translated to the word Christos, which is where we get Christ. In other words, Samuel is looking at Eliab. He's looking at externals, and he says, this must be the Christ. But it wasn't Eliab, not even close. It wasn't even David. In fact, David was a mere precursor a shadow, a pointer to the real king. You see, David, he was, he was born in Bethlehem. He's from Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, everyone's looking for the next king. But he was cast out. He was left out. He was with the sheep and the animals because he was a shepherd. Centuries later, there was another child born in Bethlehem. Everyone's looking for a king. Herod was looking for the king. The wise men were looking for the king. But he was left out too. He didn't even have a room in the inn. He was left out until he was cast out with the animals, the sheep. He was born in a manger, and he would become the good shepherd. From the moment that David was anointed, he experienced suffering and trouble. He was living in caves. He faced death all through his life. Jesus Christ, soon after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was immediately sent into the wilderness and from there suffered his entire life. He was oftentimes alone, always overlooked, all the way to the cross and on the cross. You know, David, David was forgotten. He was left out by his father. But Jesus Christ on the cross, he wasn't just left out by the father. He was kicked out by the father. He was completely forsaken by the father. He was rejected. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, what he was saying is, now this is the true being overlooked. I'm truly being overlooked. I'm cosmically, spiritually being overlooked, cast out, rejected by God. Isaiah 53 says that he was cast out of the land of the living. This is the most beautiful, the most worthy person, the most kingly person, the most perfect, righteous person that ever walked the earth. And yet he was unrecognized virtually and rejected by the world. Isaiah 53 says he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. John chapter 1 says that he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. On the cross, his friends abandoned him. His friend betrayed him. And as the wrath of God was pouring out on him as a penalty for our sins, he was rejected by the Father. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ received the ugliness of our sin. He became ugly so that God would be attracted to you. Just attracted to you. You see that? Jesus Christ became a slave to death 
Why? So that you would become a king. First Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a king. So when you feel ugly, when you feel overlooked, when you feel rejected, remember Christ. Look to the ultimate narrative. You've got to take your story. That's why the Old Testament is there. You've got to take your story of ugliness and abandonment and overlooked and being overlooked and being rejected and place it into the much larger story of one who was overlooked and rejected and ugly and abandoned. You've got to, you've got to take your story, place it into the ugliness of Jesus, that narrative on the cross, the only rejection that could truly outcast you, the only rejection that could totally ruin you and see that you are never forsaken. You are in Christ. Everything he deserved, you receive. Because everything you deserved, he received. You were never forsaken. You were never rejected. You were never overlooked. You were just in an incubator. You were chosen. You were saved. You're just in an incubator. God's character training program. He himself is working in you to make you more like Christ. So you have to remember, stop dwelling on your externals. Remember Christ. You know what it means to remember? Think about the words. This is English class. Remember. It means to become reattached, to reattach the members of your soul and bring it together to make you whole. And when you trust that, through the cross, Jesus Christ gave you his beauty and took on your cosmic ugliness, took on your rejection, the Holy Spirit will rush into your life. By the way, that's what salvation is. I mean, do you really need the externals? Are you really going to pursue the externals? You're going to look at them differently. It's wonderful to have the externals. It's wonderful to have that opportunity. It's wonderful to have that ability. But is it more important than Jesus Christ giving you his beauty and his glory and his righteousness? That's the only beauty that you need. That's the real power, the real kingliness that you need. The externals say, yeah, you can have it now, and it feels good to be accomplished. You can have it right now. You need to work for it, though. The gospel says Jesus Christ, he became ugly for you. He became cosmically alone for you so that he, because he is attracted to you. That's the only attractiveness that you need, your brokenness. He saw you in your brokenness. That's what he was attracted to. He saw you in your ugliness of sin. That's what he is attracted to. Sin equalizes all of us. Doesn't matter how you look. You serve a God, you serve a king that doesn't care how you look, what you can do. He's looking inside and seeing what you rely on. Because that's what you're going to have at the end. So if you rely on yourself, that's all you got at the end. You rely on Christ and his record and his beauty and his righteousness. That is what you will have in the end. That's the only validation and approval you need. It's the only thing that can ever truly fill you with joy and undo your hardness and discontent with just yourself, your discomfort with yourself and being overlooked. It's the end of sadness and envy and the comparisons. It's going to melt away your obsession with externals. You're going to have renewed eyes. You're going to have better judgment. You need, in order to be kingly, you need to have good judgment. You're going to be wiser. How do you practice it? Real quick, before we close. One, the gospel is the end 
of your obsession with externals. Why? Because the people who are obsessed with externals overlook Jesus. So you're going to start to turn your eye to character, focusing on character. You're going to be attracted to real character. People who are demonstrating poignantly, poignantly and pointedly what it means to surrender, what it means to sacrifice, to live by faith, to forsake the externals because they are now in Christ. That's going to be attractive to you. That's called repentance, by the way. Number two, the gospel is then the beginning. If it's the end of focusing on the externals, it's the beginning of focusing on your own growth and character. Stop focusing on everybody else's flaws. Focus on what God is doing right now in your incubator. Stop focusing on other things that you think you need while you're in the incubator trying to figure out a way to get out of the incubator so you can start to build your life again with wealth and pedigrees and credentials. Examine what God desires of you right now in this moment. It's an important moment in your incubator. Some of you are in school. You know what school is? It's that pressure cooker. It's an incubator. Some of you, you're stuck in your careers like you've been in this career and you feel like you, don't lack, you lack certain skills that everybody else is just getting ahead and you're kind of stuck there. You know what that is? You're in an incubator. Some of you are stuck in a relationship or maybe you're stuck in singlehood and it just feels pressure-filled at one point and, and just desperation in another area and there's just a lot there that's going on inside and you feel alone and you've got to go about like lots of anxieties there, depression. You know what that is? That's an incubator. You feel largely re- neglected. You're in an incubator. If you invest just even as, just as much energy as, on your character as you do in your externals, for instance, invest in your integrity. Invest in your purity. If you invest in that as much as you do on your pedigree, if you invest uh, or value or delight in your relationship with your father as much as that relationship that you feel like you really need, you will reach the potential that God is working in you greater potential, greater options, greater freedom, greater joy. Don't get distracted. You know one way that you can keep from getting distracted? Find people in your life, in the church, that can help you not get distracted and listen to them. Because we are, if you hear last week, we are deaf and blind. So you need people to help you. Are you willing to let them do an audit in your life and tell you the ways that you are focusing on externals and not on character? Be honest with them. Be transparent. You know, the wisdom that you receive is, is only going to be as good as the data that you provide. It's for you. You have the courage to do that. You have the humility to do that. I'm going to sum it all up here. Stop pursuing the externals. Stop pursuing the Eliabs in your life and stop trying to be one in your life. Look at the misery of the city and all the broken relationships and the violence, you know, wonderful prayer for the city earlier today. Look at all the, the brokenness in the city. Look at all the brokenness in our church for that matter. What's the source? You think the source is we lack talent? You think the source is we lack creativity? You think the source is we just lacked intelligent people? We got a lot of intelligent people. You think we lack beauty? We have a lot of beautiful people here. No, we lack love. We lack character. We lack trust and surrender. We lack a heart of generosity. It's the pride and the covetousness and the anger and the envy and the selfishness. 
at Metro, it's been, look, I mean, look at me, you know. I, I don't play the part. I didn't look the part when I got here. It took me a long time to even be comfortable up here. When people first saw me, they said, that guy's a pastor? When people first saw me, you know, they said, you know, you put me in a lineup of nine other pastors, and I, I get the 10th vote. You know, ain't no MVP voting for me, right? Man, that's a wonderful incubator where God quietly then starts to shape you to be able to just focus on God's word, focus on what he's saying, and the Lord just takes you to places and opens up occasions and opportunities where he will use you. And he's still doing that with me. Man, I've been through the ringer here. There are reasons, I mean, just, there, there, when people say you don't want to be a pastor, why not? There are specific reasons why I didn't want to be a pastor. And a couple years in, I experienced them. You know? And I said, yep, this is it. This is why I didn't want to do this. I just want to lay low do my job, excel in my, at my work, you know, and, and here I am. But friends, there's a greater joy in letting some things go. The hardest thing to give is up. There's a greater joy in letting things go instead of to working so hard to keep everything together by yourself. And when you start to do that and live, that's a very important phrase this year, by faith in Christ, trusting in his merit and his righteousness and his work accomplished for you, yes, even for you, it brings about a greater beauty. It brings about a greater joy. It brings about a much greater confidence. Join me in that. I want to be, imagine our church filled with beautiful, talented people, but if we can just reject the externals, our reliance on the externals, sorry, Let's reject. It doesn't mean that if you have the externals, it's a bad thing. Let's reject our reliance on those things and look to the humble king who modeled, demonstrated, and died to give us his beauty and righteousness. Man, when we look at that, what it could do in our community, what that could do in the community at large. Are you with me on that? Let's pray.